you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 2. Now I'm going to jump over throughout the Bible, but I just, you guys can stay in Genesis chapter 2 for a while. You know, I'll get there eventually, but this is just, uh, because of the topic, there's going to be, you know, it requires us to kind of go throughout the scriptures. But uh, I'm going to spend, eventually in this, in this sermon, most of the time in Genesis later on down the line. Before we start, let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, we're grateful uh, to be able to meet um, here, and we ask that as we um, fellowship and to hear your word and um, do all the things that are means of grace, uh, that we ultimately will become greater lovers of you, that we love you more and that we worship you more because of it. Lord, be with us this time as we study this huge topic. Um, Lord, we know that this is uh, because of how vast this topic may be. May you give us the intention to focus and hope that we can glean from it areas and, and doctrinal truth so that we are able to uh, honor you in the realm of dating and marriage, Lord. Thank you for allowing us uh, to be here tonight. Um, we thank you in your son. Amen. Well, last week we did an introduction on our series on dating and uh, relationships, and today is going to be kind of like really the official first part of that. And I, re I referenced this book last week about it's called a Letter to a Romantic. Um, this portion that I'm going to actually talk tonight is actually not in that book. Um, it's kind of like, you know, like I said last week, you know, sometimes books that are, or movies that are inspired by, by books will add and take away things. This is an example of that. I'm adding something into this. So if you're reading the book, you're like, where is this? It's like, it's not there. And the reason why I'm adding this is because this is a very crucial topic. This is a topic of biblical anthropology. And just before I even start, I do want to give a disclaimer that this particular message is actually going to speak strictly for those who have a desire for marriage. Um, yes, there's going to be the, the theological things that applies to both, but a lot of the applications, I'm going to speak to those who do not have the gift of singleness. Uh, we will talk about singleness next week, but for now in this talk tonight, the main audience that I'm trying to address are those who long to be married. Understand? So then, you know, if I make some applicational point and, you're, and you, you, know, you, have to, you feel like you're the gift of singleness, like, hey, that doesn't apply to me, well, it's because you're not the target audience. Wait until next week if that's the if you are in that category where you're uniquely gifted for singleness. So why would a topic like biblical anthropology be helpful? Well, let's just break down these two words, uh, anthropology. Uh, this is basically a study of humankind uh, in a secular world that's uh, they use in terms of studying like fossils and, and civilizations. That's usually how the world uses the word anthropology, like studying of humans. Uh, but when we, use, when we add the word biblical in the front, is basically studying humans in light of a biblical worldview. It's studying what does the Bible have to say about people, about you and I, about human beings. Now what does this have to do with things like dating and marriage? Well, it comes back to the reality that we were made by God. God made this world and the people in it and in, with this in, in this particular order, and that's supposed to show us the beauty of God. God made the world, and God made the people inhabit the world. And God did not make these with, without uh, intent in mind, without order, or, and without structure. God made it, and it's supposed to reflect him in some way. Remember that the end goal of dating 
is marriage. And if you don't get the goal right, or if you're not headed towards the right direction, if you don't even know who you are, then you will not be able to date and ultimately marry in such a way that honors God. We as Christians, we're all called to be worshipers of God. We're called to be worshipers of Jesus Christ. That's why we're called Christians. And to be in, in order to be a worshipful Christian, that means that we do all things exactly according to what God has to say in his word. And we do it willingly, knowing that it pleases him when we submit to him. And when we submit to him, it shows to others and to our own lives how, how worthy our Savior is. We submit to God's word, and we show the world and to ourselves the value of our Savior. Christians are called to know the Bible and to live for the God of the Bible and in accordance to the Bible. And biblical anthropology gives us the framework of who we are, who we are in light of what the Bible has to say. And this issue is obviously the issue of identity because this is a big thing in the world. The world thinks that, oh, my identity is self-determined. I decide who I am. I am the self-determining person who decides my fate. I know my origins, even though that's not true. Uh, there's always a limitation to that. But we as Christians, we operate off a biblical worldview, and we come from the Lord. We belong to him. He dictates our life. Again, we as Christians know that we need to submit to the Lord. There are things about you and I that are immutable because our God is an immutable God. There are things about us that will not change because God doesn't change. You can't change your ethnicities and you can't change your gender. In our modern age, again, that's a very controversial thing to say, but that is what the Bible teaches. So how can we honor the Lord and, or be worshipful in our dating and marriage when we understand biblical anthropology? Now, this is a huge topic, I know, biblical anthropology. If you pick up any systematic theology, it's a huge like, portion, it's like several hundred pages long. And I'm just going to choose three of those areas. Um, and, and, and relate it into the context of dating and marriage. If you want to honor the Lord, here are three areas of biblical anthropology that you need to know so you can be a better worshiper of the Lord as you pursue dating and ultimately marriage. So the first truth that we need to learn is that your life is made by the Lord. The Lord created you. You belong to him in that way. The way that we think about our human life must be through, not through a secular lens, but through a biblical lens. The first truth of humanity is that you and I are made by God. He is the one that brought us into existence. I have you turn to Genesis because that's where it all begins. Genesis is a historical account, but it's more than just that. God brought order from chaos. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. And then he, as we go on that passage, you know, he creates everything. And on the sixth day, uh, he does something very unique in that he brings humanity into existence. And, he, and in that, Humans are made with a human body. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that then Yahweh, God, formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living being. What is interesting in this, just looking through, is that we don't have the capacity to will ourselves into existence. Man cannot breathe if God did not give them life through his breath. We, will, we, we cannot even exist 
without God's doing. This shows the difference between the creator and the creature. We are all creatures in independence of the Lord on all things. Man has no free will when it comes to existence. They, we cannot make that claim that I came into existence because I wanted to. I, I did not will myself and all of a sudden, bam, I'm here. That's not how it works. And it's evidence, you just ask your parents, they will tell you, you did not just appear out of nowhere. A bird did not bring you here. You, you came out of someone and for your moms, that was a very difficult time. So it was the most offensive thing to say to your mom, like, hey, I came out of nowhere. It's like, no, 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 that's not true. That's not how it works. But if you trace humanity all the way back, we understand that God is ultimately the one that created us. Man doesn't argue and negotiate with God in terms of being. Um, Job, you could write this down. Job chapter 12, verse 10. Job here is, you know, he's just, he his terrible friends are arguing and, and he responds to his accuser in this way. Job chapter 12, verse 7, it says, But now ask the beasts and let them teach you, and the birds of the heavens let them tell you, or speak to the earth and let it teach you. And let the fish of the sea declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the, of the Lord has done this, and whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the, and the breath of all mankind. Uh, Paul, on Mars Hill, when, he's, when he was making his defense of, the gospel, of, of, the, of who Jesus Christ is, says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, in him we live and move and exist. The only reason why we live on this, on this planet, even have life, is because God is the one that gives us life and he's the one who sustains us. God shows us who he, who he is by making humanity. He sets the terms and there's no free will when it comes to man deciding their own life and their own sexuality, which we'll get to in a sec. In other words, a faithful Christian must always acknowledge that you are where you are today because God has placed you there. You have no say on whether you come into the earth. You have no say on what gender you are. You have no say on what ethnicity. You are who you are because God has given you your identity. You may think that you can change it in terms of this life, but it doesn't change in, in God's eyes. God knows exactly who you are because he knit you in the womb. Life is set according to God. There are physical laws and that, that are established by the Lord and things like gravity and, and the way that the, the, the planets orbit around the universe, um, oxygen, all of these things are just natural law that God has set into place. There are even moral laws that the Lord has set in our hearts so that we know right and wrong. There are even societal structures that God has established. And no matter how many rules that people try to make or how they defy or make new laws and new regulations or, or, or demand to not listen to these regulations, it doesn't erase the reality that God has established all that there is. People can manipulate as much as they want, but God is ultimately the one that sets the terms. Mankind is always in God's territory. This is what Psalm ch uh, chapter 100 verse 3 tells us, Psalm 100, verse, sorry, my Bible, oh, here it is, Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord himself is God, it is he who has made us, and not we ourselves, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture, so in other words, the greatest sinful form of pride is to deny God, 
for making you because you're saying that you are somehow self-existing. We don't rule our lives because our lives are not ours to own to begin with. Our lives are not our own. So why is this significant in the realm of dating and marriage? Because you need to remember when you think about dating that dating and marriage must always be in subject to the rules of, God, of God's word. God gives you principles and commands on how you need to live and conduct yourself in the context of, of, of dating and marriage and just everyday life. If you belong to him, you live a certain way. And this is important because since you belong to the Lord, that means he owns you. He not only made you, but he ransomed you with his life. He, he bought with you, he bought you with, his, with the, the blood of his son. And Jesus said, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. This is why scripture is called Christians slaves of Jesus Christ. Uh, we belong to him. And essentially, the moment we become saved, we, our, our minds get corrected and we go back to how, what, we're, what we're intended for. We understand what God's word had to say, and we repent, and we turn from our sins. We stop living our, from, for ourselves. We stop living a self-righteous life, and we depend on, on Christ's righteousness. Redemption in Christ redeems us, not just for us to be made right with God, but also redeems us and makes us live according to God's purpose. When you fail to see your life belong to the Lord, you will fail to live worshipfully in the context of dating and marriage and everything. To be a worshipful, to be worshipful in the context of dating, you need to understand that God has made you and you're called to live in obedience to him. That's the first basic truth about biblical anthropology for us, that we are the creature, he is the creator. And since he is the creator, he decides what is best, right, and good, because he is, he's, this is how he created everything. That means that anything that contradicts God in the standard is by nature terrible, wrong, and bad, which, is, which kind of builds and leads to our next point. If we know that God owns us because he created us, that means that everything about us is also, uh, is also the thing that he made. Our second point is that our, sexual, our gender and sexuality is made by God. Not only is God the one who made you, but therefore, he's, since he's the creator, he's the one who decides and decides your gender and sexuality. Again, this is probably the most offensive thing that I'll say right now. If I was to cancel, it would be for that statement, that you do not decide your gender or sexuality. What makes God, God, is that whatever he does cannot be undone. Because God is the standard, and his standard doesn't change. God is immutable in that way. He doesn't change. Therefore, his standards of right and wrong doesn't change. Therefore, his, 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 God making you male or female, that's because that's what he wants you to be. God establishes the sexes and gives us scripture and how we are to live. This is where Genesis comes into play. Genesis chapter 1, I think, I've, I, think I read this at first. Genesis chapter 1, oh, I did not read this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image, an image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Contrary to what the world thinks, it, gender is not fluid, it is not vague. The Bible is crystal clear that God made only two genders. It is not personally defined, but God decides it for you. This, again, goes back to what I said about how God owns you. He made you, so you belong to him. You and I do not decide who we want to be. God decides that for us, and to subvert that is to go against God, is to fight against God. Man was made first, and then the woman from the rib of Adam, but uh, only after both people were made, God said, this is very good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he has made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was more than the sixth day. 
sex, gender, this is all biological. This is the fundamental part of human life. Even though the world is trying to soften the biblical realities, the church must stand firm. Last week I said that there, in a not-so-distant future, your marriage is going to be both off offensive to the world and at the same time it's going to be offensive in, in telling people the truthfulness of God's word and it's going to be defensive in that you're protecting the sacredness of marriage. It goes both ways. If you honor the Lord in your marriage, you're going to be offensive to people and you're going to be defending God's standard for marriage. God's design of your gender and sexuality is given by God to show first and foremost God's worth because you submit to God. The reason why we do this ultimately because we know that the God of the Bible is true, we love him, and then we do what he tells us to do. Again, this is also, and the Bible tells us that the marriage between a man and a woman is to be a picture between him and his bride. Not only does our gender and sexuality is defined and marked out by God, but our salvation, again, is given to us by the Lord. This means doubly so that we appreciate what God has given us, that there is a beauty in the fact that God made man and God, then that God made woman. There's, there's something unique about that. If your sexuality is made by God, that means that you need to cherish and honor that, especially for the Christian. We aren't called to use our bodies according to our own fleshly desires. This was 2 Corinthians uh, the first, I think First Corinthians talks about that, that you are not your own. Um, you're, you're not supposed to use your body uh, for sexual sin. Your body is a temple of God. Your sexuality is made by God, and who you have sex with is still under the restriction and mandates from our God. This is what Hebrews talks about at the end, where, where the marriage bed is, should be, is a sacred thing. It's, 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 it's designed for marriage. This is why marriage is such an offensive topic to the world, and particularly Christians that profess, you know, professing Christians that buy into the LGBTQ. It's offensive to God, and ultimately when professing Christians buy into the new sexual moral revolution. The problem is, is actually that the Bible is not vague about it. Why people are offended is because the Bible is actually very clear about what is right and wrong. And since the Bible is clear about this topic, we as Christians must submit to it. Rejection of God's standard of sexuality and gender is denying that he is the creator, which makes sense why those outside of the world want to deny God and deny the Bible, of, of the God of the Bible, because they want, to do, they want to do away with God. Their God is of their own making. I don't know if you, if you guys Google this, you can find that, I don't know if they still sell anymore, but at one point they had this thing called the Queen James Bible. Basically, it's trying to show you why the Bible is supportive of the LGBTQ movement. And then there's all of these, you know, they go through all those passages and they try to explain, oh, no, that's not what it really means. But ultimately, what they're trying to do is to change God. That's why they're doing what they're doing. So you know, what does this have to do with dating and marriage? Well, it just limits you in terms of who you can pursue. If you are a man, you need to pursue a woman. If you're a woman, then you need to be with a man. That's just the reality of living in this world, that God has set these parameters, and as Christians, we need to obey those parameters. If you're in your life, you must cherish and be thankful in the way that the Lord has made you. Now, this is a huge topic. You can go look more in different books uh, on, on gender and, and how God made it unique, uh, and it's all part of the grand design, and the time that we have is not going to allow me to go through everything, but if you do understand what, how God has made your gender sexuality, you can, you can be appreciative of the Lord and his, and his ability to make things for people to enjoy life together. 
you're to pursue the only kind of person that God allowed you to pursue. Um, I mentioned last week there's really four things that we need to look for. They need to be saved. They need to be single, as in not married. Uh, they need to have uh, you have the appropriate sex, and you mean the opposite gender. And the fourth point is optional, but they have to like you. I mean, you know, marriage, you have to, you can, you're, if you're married, you understand you're, you're like, you're always work, working to, you know, work in your relationship. So there are days where it's hard to, to love them. Or as one of the biblical counselors says, you, some of you guys will have moments where you have this heated fellowship. It's a nice way of saying arguments and conflict. But yeah, it's just the reality that in, uh, in marriage, if you want to pursue someone, you have to pursue a person according to scripture. To be worshipful to the Lord in the context of dating and marriage, you must date and marry in the confines of God's standard. Again, building upon the first point, you need to understand that your life is not your own. This world is created by God. You are the creature, and therefore you need to submit to the Lord. And not only that, but uh, God specifically made you male or female, and you need to submit to the Lord. That means that he decides what kind of person that you are and the, per- and the kind of person that you need to pursue. Now, this builds to our last point, that since God has made everything, he made you, and he made you male and female, then you need to also understand that the, the union of marriage is also created by the Lord. Our last point this evening, that I'm going to spend the most time here, which is that your marriage is made by God. Marriage is made by God. This is where I'm going to spend most time here in Genesis. I don't know if you've thought about this, but marriage is actually the very first institution that God has made. Before the church, before the nation of Israel, God has created the institute of marriage. Marriage is not marriage because the culture decides that, okay, we're going to make this thing called marriage between one man and one woman. Uh, That's not how marriage began. Marriage is created by God and is revealed to us in scripture. The parameters of marriage as understood in the Bible is between a man and a woman. Marriage is a grace of God to all humanity. This means that even non-believers, if they are, you know, marriage between a man and a woman, there's, that's still honoring to the Lord, even though uh, they reject God. It's still marriage that's defined by God. Now, on the flip side, if something that goes against God's design of marriage is not, and even though they call it marriage, it's not actually marriage. Just because you call something, something doesn't make it so. A few years ago, uh, on our college group, uh, before they were, you know, before joining heirs, uh, we had this game nights, and I was, I was playing with these guys that were like visitors from the church, and we were playing Uno, and I, I was like, I, I, I've seen people play it, but I'm not good at it. Can someone explain the rules to me? And it just so happened by providence that I was also with people that, that are were familiar with the game, but don't, can't explain the rules. So we took out the booklet, and we read it, and we were all confused because the booklet and the way that we remember is totally different. Have you guys ever read the booklet for Uno? It is not what you think. And we're reading, we're like, okay, this is the game that we've been playing the whole time or that we think Uno is, is not actually how it's played. If you read the instructions, it's like, oh, it's, it's way more complicated. It seems to take forever. So that means that the game that we were playing, although we called it Uno, was not actually Uno. It's not the original game's designer. It's not their intent. We were playing some warped version of that. Similarly, similarly, in other form, any other form of marriage that defines the world as marriage as contrary to scripture is not actually marriage. The label does not define it. God defines it. Polygamous marriage is not marriage because polygamy is not part of God's design. 
the first instance that we see of pleadings is Genesis chapter 4, when this one individual, Lamech, he, he, he's such an evil person. He's known to kill all these people. But one of the things that he's known is he has, he has two wives. And that's his way of, to defy God's standard. He's such a wicked individual that even in his marriage, it was wrong. So polygamous, you can have, say opposite gender, but have multiple wives, that's actually a sin against the Lord. A person also, and likewise marrying some of the same gender, is not marriage, even though they call it marriage. God made man with the intent to be fruitful and multiply. This means there are just certain things that man has and there are certain things that woman has in order to make a child, in order to have babies. You know, there's only certain things that men have and certain things that women have. Those materials are built into their genders. Now, I understand, you know, there are situations where people can have children. I get that, but I'm just saying in the, in the natural thing, natural and the normal uh, part of life, that's just how it goes. Those materials are built into their genders. When God designed it, he didn't just make it in terms of just male and female physically, but he gave the necessary material in order to create life. Marriage is designed by God. Genesis speaks of singleness. Again, I'm speaking to those who, have a, who want to pursue marriage, okay? Genesis speaks of singleness in the sense of people who do not have the gift of singleness as not good. So if you are in that category of wanting to get married and you choose to stay single, there's a sense in which that God says that is not good. There are multiple reasons why some people stay single. I get that. But if you intentionally pursue singleness, even though you have this burning desire for marriage, you choose to reject trying to move and find a spouse, the Bible tells you that that's not good. Again, that's the only thing, in, in the, the only not good reality, the pre-fall Eden that's explicitly stated is that man should not be alone. Most of us, again, unless you're uniquely called for the gift of singleness, you're not called to be alone. Remember that the original design for man is that there's will be fruitful and multiply. They're supposed to start a family. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, says that the re, because of that, uh, God, because man can't be alone, uh, he's going to make a helper. Then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called, whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gives names to all cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And it's, you know, I think that's kind of funny that like Adam's like listing all these animals. You see the pairs and he's like, no one is exactly like me. And then God's like, yes, because there's something missing in your life. And it's, a, and it's, a, and it's something that's suitable for him. The woman here is described as a helper. She's described in terms of what she provides the man. In other words, woman doesn't really need a man as much as the man needs the woman. That is biblical because that's what Adam happened. He's, he's like, I'm missing something. I need a wife. Whereas woman's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't really need you because that's my design is to, is to help you. But God has made woman to help the man, and which is super counterculture thing to say or even think about, but the Bible teaches that man was lacking something. It wasn't complete until the woman came into his life. And even though this seems strange to the world, again, 
it's actually, I mean, this is strange, right? It's actually still present with us today. Sometimes men are oblivious and women helps them get a clue. Like they, they're just, you know, they help them. Adam was named all these creatures wondering why isn't there someone that is like his counterpart? It didn't dawn on him that there was no counterparts. This isn't to say that Adam was an idiot or he was dumb or he was just like aloof, but it does mean that there was no way for him to fulfill God's mandate without a woman. See, God's mandate here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says this, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, he, God gives them command to be fruitful, multiply. Adam couldn't find someone that can do that. That's why God fashions him a woman so that he can fulfill God's mandate. Women is to assist the man, and the man does have this leadership role. The fact that Eve is described as a helper implies that the man is not the helper. He's supposed to lead. Lead. The wife is the primary helper to the husband. Husbands are called to give the direction of the family. Wives are called to help the husband in fulfilling his role in leading. It means that the husband leads in a Christ-like, godly, and humble way. Men are called to take charge and the consequences of those decisions. Ladies, you need to understand your role when it comes to marriage. And I'm sure you already know some of these passages, what it means to be a godly wife, which we will go over. We will have a lesson on what the woman to be at a later time. But at least with this verse, understand your role in the context of marriage is to be a helper. Helper in the Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word helper is the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you fulfill your role as a helper, it's a very godly thing to do. The mean, this means that you may end up with a man, um, and I think uh, every wife can say that all their husbands are deficient in some way, and wives are supposed to come alongside them and help them. This means that some of the men around you, they may not be perfect. They may act like childish, childish and immature but trust that if you're meant to be with that person, the Lord will use you in such a unique way that will build him up to be the man that God wants him to be. And guys, you, ought, you need to think, um, uh, there, there are some who think that being a leader at home means that you need to micromanage everything. I remember, I, was, I once shared, I don't know if I shared the story, but I was chatting with the elder once about that. I was like, what does leadership look like in a home? And he told me, it's not micromanagement. I was like, then what is it? What does it look like? And what's a terrible example? He gave me this terrible example of what micromanagement looked like. He's like, there was a guy in the church at the time who said that I am the leader of homes. So I need to make every single decision. Like, I need to decide how many chairs are going to be in the dining table, and, you know, the, the carpet color, everything. And, and Basically, so many conflicts arose. They asked this elder, okay, what am I supposed to do? Like, my husband's bossing me around. I don't even know what I'm doing here. And, and that's what the elder asked them. Why did you even get married if you don't need a helper? If you, if, 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 you, if you don't need her, then why did you even get married to begin with? God has made her a helper in your life. If you're constantly dismissive of, <laughs> dismissive of her and is super micromanaging, then you shouldn't have gotten married to begin with. The guy got convicted, and then he eventually repented. But you understand, men, that your role, if you get married to whoever is, is, is the lead and woman, your role is to help your husband. In 
for wives, future wives, or you that aspire to be a wife, and maybe pointing out their blind sides, and maybe giving some wise counsel. Whatever it may be, it must always be done in a spirit of gentleness, respect, and love. It's where single ladies need to learn to be patient and wise and learn to be the, the best helper that you can be. You'll notice Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 and verse 20, 21 to 22. So Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Uh, Yahweh, God, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought, to her, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Just like Adam's existence hinged on God, Eve's existence hinged on both Adam and God. He used parts of Adam in order to make Eve. Um, he is, uh, this is something that we often overlook and we just see this as just some sort of information, but there is so much rich theology here that Adam, when he saw his wife, when he woke up from his little surgery, uh, he wakes up and he sees his wife and, and he realizes, okay, you are a part of me. A part of me is, 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 is what made you and together they are one. And because of that, he has a responsibility to cherish her and to protect her. I think this is why in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, it tells us that husband needs to treat his own wife like he would yourself. Like no husband, no one would, that, 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 no one would do something harmful to themselves. So he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. And I think that's what happened when Adam saw Eve. He understood that she was more than just this creature that God made, that she was part of him, and that she, he needs to treat her the way that he takes care of himself, the nourishment and the cherishing, because he knows that he was alone, but now he's no longer alone because God has given her to him. God is honored in marriage when husband protects and cares for his wife as, it, as if it is his own body. Look at verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam here gives Eve her name. He gives her a name, which is significant because in verse 20, Adam was instructed to name everything. In other words, marriage is, uh, in a marriage, the man is supposed to lead. He's supposed to have leadership in that role. He's supposed to, take, he's supposed to have dominion. He's supposed to be a good steward with all that he is given. And obviously, this is not the way the world thinks. This is in the context of marriage that men need to take charge. That when you, if you want to be a married man, that you understand your role in taking the lead. You need to be responsible for the wife that God gives you. Later on in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it reads, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God tells the man to leave their father and mother and cling to his wife. Now, Adam, I'm just imagining Adam was probably hearing this like, what father and mother? I don't have any parents. Who's the father and mother? Obviously, God is speaking 
to God, and as uh, God is speaking to Adam, and Adam's really like representative of all of humanity here. He's giving this instruction to him so that when he has children, they will teach this and bring this and, and teach the lesson over and over to every single generation. That they're supposed to leave their own home, leave them, and start their own family. Adam, representing all of us, humanity, is given this charge to leave our father and mothers and to start, this, uh, start our own family. Yet the man takes initiative to go and break from father and mother. Again, why is this particular passage here? This is where I say that sometimes we just overlook certain passages like this. We just think it's just part of the narrative. But why is this idea of leaving father and mother there? The implication is that men who do not have the gift of singleness, meaning they want to get married, would not want to leave their own homes to start a family by themselves. There's this sinful tendency for us to not want to break away and to go and live and start a family of our own. Men, you're called to take initiative in marriage. You're going to be perfect in this area, but you're called to leave the home that you are in, leave your father and mother, and start your own family. Now, in the Old Testament, when men left the home, they didn't actually like leave the actual physical home. Most of the time, the, in the Jewish context, they just went out to find a wife and they kind of built near the fam their family homes. That's why it's just kind of like building in the property. Like they just keep expanding. Um, but the idea is that you begin, you leave your father and mother's household and, you, and, and their authority and you start your own family. But this is, this is in the context of marriage. You have to pursue a spouse in marriage. But what about dating? And one of the questions that we, that I got and the people have asked me is this one question is that can ladies ask guys out? And before I answer that question, just know that you shouldn't be short-sighted in only thinking about dating for the sake of dating. That's not what makes a godly person. A godly person does not date for the sake of dating because it's fun and very exciting. You date because it's supposed to be a means to an end. Much like work isn't just for the sake of working, but you work so that you have money so you can take care of your family and so that you can care for other people, so it is with dating. You don't date just to date. There's a purpose and intentionality for dating, that is marriage. So now go back, going back to the question, is it wrong for ladies to ask guys out? And there are many views on this, and every view has a strength and a weakness. And no answer for this particular question is satisfactory because the Bible is actually rather silent about this. It's silent about dating, but it's very clear when it comes to marriage. So that means that there's room to disagree. My view, again, this is my view. If I, have, if I was Mike, I would step over here on the side and say, like, okay, this is my view. Okay, my view. Do I think that it is wrong for a lady to ask a guy out on a date. My view, and again, this is not a go and do likewise, or the, because Pastor Ray said it settles it. My view is that it's no. I don't think it's wrong for a lady to ask a guy out on a date. When Kelly and I were in LA, I met up with one of my small group guys, and uh, he was recent, recently married, but before he got married, he told me his, how he met his wife, and I was like, what this sounds crazy, this cannot be real. So then when we met with him, it was like I met his wife and, his, and, my, and my friend, and I, and I asked his wife, like, okay, he told me this, I don't know how real it is, you gotta you know, be real with me. How, was this really what happened? And then she explained the story, I was like, yeah, we were at our Bible study retreat, 
he asked, he said, hey, I really need to talk to you. And she thought, oh, he's going to profess his love to me. So they went out walking the woods somewhere. And he started confessing this feeling that he has for another girl. And then she's like, oh, well, I didn't think that's why you brought me here. In fact, I thought you brought me here to tell me that you like me because I like you. And then Kelly was like, this sounds like a Korean drama. All the only thing is missing here is like fried chicken and beer. It's like, this is crazy. And then, he, and then she just left him there in the woods to think about, oh yeah, what am, yeah, she likes me, I like this other girl, what's gonna happen? So we look at, now they're married. So then you look at that, does she take the initiative there? He answers, yes, she did take that first step. She told him like, hey, I'm interested in you. Sorry about this dilemma that you have with this other lady, but if you want, you can you go out with me and leaves him there. Now they're married. So. Again, my view is that the, it's, it's okay because in the context of dating, the Bible is silent about it, but in terms of marriage, you do have to understand that the Bible is very clear on those areas. I do think that dating is a Christian liberty issue, so this actually means with some of the questions you guys might have with like online dating and everything else, there is liberty in that. But like every liberty, there are things that you just need to be, aware, uh, be cautious about and you need to be discerning since the Bible doesn't give exact commands of what is proper in the realm of dating, you just need to be wise. You need to seek wise counsel from other people. You need to think, is this the right thing to do? Now, guys, this doesn't mean, okay, I'm off the hook. Ladies, line up, ask me out. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's not a violation of scripture if ladies decide to ask you out. Because, again, men need helpers. <laughs> but, again, I do want to give a caution to you ladies if, if that's like, okay, I want to ask a guy out. Here's a few cautions. First of all, not every guy is comfortable with a lady asking them out. Just understand that. Or you know, some of you ladies don't want to do that, and that's okay. If you cannot, if you're a guy and a girl asks you and it, it violates your conscience, then don't do it. This is Romans chapter 14, verse 23. If you can't do it out of faith, don't do it. And if you are a lady and you don't want to ask someone out, you can't do it with clear conscience and do it in faith, don't do it. This is, this is not for you. Some men won't be interested in saying yes because it bothers their con uh, conscience and it and they can't do it in faith. They can't say yes to you asking them out, so you know, that's okay. Now, now, I understand this because generally speaking, it is normal for guys to ask ladies out, but just know that most guys are actually in this category where they wanna take you out, they wanna ask you out. But so there are a few people that are just solely oblivious and you just need to give them a little, little heads up, like my, my, the, my small group guy. <laughs> but if you know that this guy, one particular guy, may not be bothered by it, but, and you feel clear and your conscience is clear, then it's fine to do it. But if, if your conscience is not clear and you can't do it in faith, then don't do it. Second, if you ladies want to ask a guy out, just be open to the reality that you might get rejected. You might be, well, I'm a 10, he's a 4, I'm doing him the favor by asking him out. Just know that might not turn out the way that you think. This is where you need to swallow your pride and, and have a low view of yourself. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Have a right, don't have a high view of who you are. If you aren't open to the idea that you might be turned out, then, then don't ask the guy out. Just, just don't do it. Um, pray for him, but don't do it. Uh, and, and third, and this is probably the greatest warning, is that it's hard to change habits. I'm, again, I'm not saying it's impossible, it's just difficult. For example, a lady might start asking the guy out and he, she might take the initiative on some of the dates and, uh, and moving forward, all the things in the realm of dating. But can you submit to this person in the context of marriage? Because again, in the realm of dating, the Bible is silent about it. You just need to be wise and discerning. But you need to understand that when you cross that line, when you become husband and wife, can you submit to this person? 
again, the better question is instead of asking, can a, guy, a girl ask a guy out? Maybe a better question is this. Am I willing to let go of taking the lead and, and commit to a life of submission once I am married? Because if you cannot do that, then don't do it. Don't, don't ask the guy out. Because it might, you might have certain habits that you might build over time. It might be very difficult for you to let those things go the moment you come, become married. Again, this view of girls asking guys out, that's just my view. You don't have to adopt it. I don't really care. Um, uh, just, again, you just have to be discerning in those ways. But again, I just said the guy, the Bible just said men leave the home and find a wife. So how does that square with the guy taking initiative? I think in this passage here in Genesis is speaking of initiative for and throughout the context of marriage. So at least that means that the guy needs to propose because right, he is the one that needs to find the wife. So at some point, he does need to propose. Um, he may be oblivious in terms of the ladies that's interested in him or going out with that first date, but he should know if he wants to marry you. He should be the one asking you, will you marry him? Now, obviously, the, the, the biblical example for this is obviously Ruth and Boaz. She went and she you know, uncovered his feet and he's like, who, is it? who are you? And then Ruth explains to him who she is and and she basically expressed her interest, but Boaz is the one that takes the initiative when it comes to marriage. He goes, he does, the, he, you know, he speaks to the one, the closer kinsman, and then um, you know, he does all the things that he needs to make sure that Ruth is his. He does that, and Ruth is known as an example of the Proverbs 31 woman. Boaz is also known as a noble man because he takes the initiative and the responsibility of preserving the family line. And so it is with you men. You need to learn to take the responsibility in proposing and starting your own family. Again, the Bible is silent about dating, but it is clear about marriage. If you, so if you understand that you're willing to fully submit yourself to the word of God, then pursue whoever, however you want for the glory of God. And this is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Notice, back to the passage Husbands are called to cling to their wife. In the NASB, Genesis 2.24, it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. I actually prefer the ESV translation here. The ESV here says cling to. The, Na the NASB uses the word joined. Uh, husbands are called to cling to their wife. To cling to their wife. Husbands need to hold fast to their own wife. There's an implication here, just like, the man needing to take initiative of marriage, and the, the reason why it's here is because there are, there's gonna be, you know, again, there's people that don't want to take that initiative, even though they should. There's also implication here that, man, that the men will not want to cling to their own wives. God gives this commandment so that husbands need to know that they need to cling to the wife. Notice it's not the other way around. It doesn't say wife cling to your husband. It's husbands cling to your wife. That means it's the guy's job to keep the marriage intact. You look at high divorce rates, you look at husbands abandoning the family, lazy husbands, irresponsible husbands. These are all reactions or results of people giving in to their own sin. The husband is called to hold fast to her. He's called to cherish, nourishes, and never let her go. Again, the implication is that there will be people that chooses to ignore this command. This means you need to have the devotion and loyalty to your own spouse. Men, again, this is a charge for you that if you want to be married, you need to lead in the home. You need to continually be clinging to your spouse. Now, obviously, I'm not saying you carry them 
all around. I'm not you know, Kelly's over there. I'm not walking around with her and say, look, I'm clinging to my wife. I'm not letting her go. This is speaking metaphorically here that you're always going to be with them, that you cling to them. Um, you need to ensure that, she's, that your wife is taken care of and that you take charge in the spiritual and the physical condition of your own home. It's your responsibility then to be faithful to your, to your future, potential future wife. Guard yourself from temptation that make you want to leave your spouse. The implication in this text is that you will want to. You'll have to desire in your struggles and your conflict and whatever it may be that you may think to yourself, I don't want to keep this commitment anymore. And God is telling you, no, you cannot do that. Divorce offends the Lord and you need to cling to your wife. And that's how you honor the Lord in your marriage. God's given you the grace through the work of the spirit to be able to fulfill your task as a husband. So men, ask yourself, have you cultivated a heart of devotion? Are you known as someone that's, that's known to follow through with your words? One of the greatest words that you'll ever give in this life is to your future wife when you make those vows. You give her before the Lord and others that you will keep your word and, and keeping your marriage, that you'll never forsake her the way that Christ will never forsake his bride. Think about areas in your, in your life now that you can work on. When you say you're going to do something, follow through with it. If you fail to do something, own, take ownership of it and, then, and, then, and repent of it. Again, obviously, you're not going to be perfect, but at least you need to strive to be faithful with your words on the little things so that when it comes to marriage and throughout the rest of your marriage and life, that you will be known as a man that's devoted. Look at Genesis. Looking at Genesis, this means that for each of you that believe you do not have the gift of singleness and want to get married, you have certain roles that you need to be preparing for. Men and women have the roles that is given by the Lord that can be fulfilled in marriage, but as a, as a single, you're not married yet, obviously, and you can still work and grow in Christ-likeness at the meantime and grow in terms of your character. Um, you need to learn to begin to learn and apply God's word in your life now because when you're married, you're going to have to do the same thing, but in a greater context. Again, you won't know it all, and the person you pursue shouldn't expect that of you, but you should at least be on the track to grow in Christ-likeness. As long as your character is marked by growing in, 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 in obedience to the Lord, that is a sign that you're on the right track. That's why I think for a lot of you, you are on the right track. You have, you have this heart to honor the Lord. You have a heart to grow in the knowledge of God. You want to do what God's word has to say. And I'm just going to tell you to continue on that route. Keep doing what God's word has to say and, on, and pray that the Lord will provide you a spouse. Again, it is not good for a man to be alone. Marriage is made by God, and both husband and wife are delegated and have a certain responsibility that the Lord expects you to keep. Again, although we know this, we won't be able to do it perfectly, but we're still called to aspire to those standards. Why? Because God made you, he's made your gender, and he's also made marriage. And if you honor the Lord in all of these areas, you can live a worshipful life that's filled with joy and happiness, ultimately you'll give God the highest glory because you will reflect how he loved the church and how that relationship is dynamic, is different, it's a beautiful thing and it will bring people to a greater understanding and appreciation of the gospel. I trust that you have this biblical view of anthropology of who you are and what you need to be that God will give you some clarity on what you need to be and who you need to find. So that's it for this 
little talk or lecture, sermon, lerman. Um, this is the topic of biblical anthropology. And I think this is important because I think it's supposed to recalibrate us. Again, I've given you some biblical principle for you guys to think about, and the hope is that you think, how can I grow in these areas? It's particularly the men here. Again, there are, I think the only applicational thing I gave to women about being a helper and to grow in that area, but for men, that gave you a lot more to think about because that's God, God was speaking to Adam in that way. Later on, we're gonna get into details of what you men should be in more detail, and ladies, same with you, about what the women should be. But for now, at least understand the basic building blocks of a marriage that's set in, revealed in the book of Genesis. So let's end our time in prayer. Lord God, we're grateful for how you made and established marriage that you've instituted for man and for women, and that man is not, shouldn't, is not good for man to be alone. And Lord, I do pray for the men here in particular that they will grow and to be more like you that in their aspirations to find a spouse, that they ultimately be the Christ-like man that you want them to be. Not out of a sinful, worldly type of manliness, but the manliness that's shown in the life of your son. Someone that, is, that takes the lead, that, that loves and cares the ch for the church so tenderly and, and lovingly. May the men here become the man that you want them to be. Lord, I do pray for the ladies here as well, that they can learn uh, to just continue to be a better helper. I know that some of the sisters here are, are doing that and they're growing that way. And Lord, I pray that if it's your will for the people here, both the men and the women, if it's your will that they find a spouse, whether it's in this church or even outside of this church, but are still believers, that you will make it so. Um, that you make the person that you want them to be was very clear to them in hopes that they can pursue that person uh, for the sake of marriage that is honoring to you. Lord, keep them holy. Keep them striving not to idolize marriage, but to uh, worship you and then see your goodness in the context of what you provided them, for them, whether that be marriage or even in singleness, Lord. You give all good gifts to us, and both singleness and marriage are great gifts. And may we be thankful for all that you've given us. We thank you for this time in your son's precious name. Amen. Like I was mentioned uh, last week, I kind of listed the list of things of the topics we'll go over. Next week, I'm gonna to speak to the topic of singleness. So this week is really the marriage side, and uh, next week it's for, how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? And what does it mean to have the gift of singleness? There've been different views on it, and I wanna to try to cover as many of them as, as, as I can, but at least give you uh, what the Bible has to say so you can discern if that's you. And if that is you, if you are that unique person, then, that, then that's something that is that we should be praising the Lord for because the Lord, according to scripture, sees singleness as the greater gift. 